Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 95 of K9's Talking Sense. In this episode, I sit down with Tim Howling. Tim is a FEMA Task Force K9 handler and trainer. He's also a captain at his fire department that he works for here in California. This episode I titled The Reality of Search and Rescue because Tim and I go deeper into the realities of the search and rescue world. We go into training, we talk about methodologies, good and bad, where we can improve, what works well. We also go into the gaps that currently exist between the reality of search and rescue and the training side of search and rescue. And what can we do to be better and how can we improve? Tim also runs nonprofits. One of those is regards to PTSD, which we talk about PTSD of canine handlers, not only in search and rescue, but in other disciplines. This is a powerful episode, lots of great information. I hope you guys enjoy it. Please like and comment on our podcast. But again, I hope you enjoy this episode. Tim, welcome to Canines Talking Sense. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to get to know you, but first starting off with how what do you do and how did you get into what you do now with dogs? So I know you're you're a firefighter. Uh-huh. And I'll let you kind of take it from there and we'll get into the dogs. Sure. Uh currently my my occupation or my positions are I'm a I'm a captain with the city of Mountain View. Work on the truck on a shift. Um, that's my day job. Mm-hmm. My sort of extra duties is I'm a I'm a dog handler and I'm the canine coordinator for FEMA California Task Force Three out of Menlo Park. Okay, um, which is one of 28 FEMA teams in the country and eight in California. So, how did you get into the dog part? Obviously, you're the firefighter first, yep. and then you got into dogs. How did that happen? It, it actually was the other way around. I was. Um, I was doing the dog thing first and became okay. a firefighter. I was actually, I was living in New York, uh, working on Wall Street as an investment banker and working like six, six and a half days a week. Mm-hmm. And I had this dream that I wanted to like get out of there. And I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted a dog. So um, eventually uh, I, I quit. I went back to California and I got a yellow lab named Deuce in 2004. Mm-hmm. I took him out to one, one sort of search and rescue training, mm-hmm. and I was hooked. It was like crack. Like that, I knew I needed to do that. Um, and 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 after that, it was sort of a search for myself. What did I want to do with my career? Did I want to go back in banking? Did I want to do something in finance? And I managed to save a little bit of money from when I was on Wall Street. I went to medic school. Okay, loved it, and was like. How do I get paid to sort of do these things? And firefighting was the answer for me. So I was a dog handler for eight years okay. before I became a, a firefighter. And what was it like when you first became a dog handler, you know, doing what you were doing in that time? Um, give like people like a background because what year would that be and, and what were you going through as a dog handler? Like how were things going at that time? Sure. So I, I got my, my first search dog in 2004. I, I didn't really intend for him to be a search dog necessarily, but I had 
was at Candlestick Park for the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. Mm. I lived in New York City for 9-11, and wow. I had seen the search dogs work. So it's like, that's pretty cool stuff. Like, I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, so I started in the wilderness world because that was kind of more accessible. It still really is for yeah. civilians. And he was just a plain old wilderness area dog. And I had plenty of time because I was sort of figuring out my life. I would be a ski bum during the winter up mm-hmm. in Squaw Valley. And the rest of the time I was just searching with my dog. So I got a ton of experience. Um, it's a different thing to deploy your dog for a real missing person mm-hmm. than doing it in training. And today we don't see that a lot because we don't, got, we don't get a lot of deployments for FEMA. We see... Um, a lot of people who could go their whole career without a deployment on the live find side. So getting that wilderness experience was was super valuable. It was a little bit different then. There weren't, you really had to go seek out people like Michael Ellis mm-hmm. if you wanted to go mm-hmm. learn more. We had sort of the old school people there. Like um, I sort of progressed in my career. I liked dogs so much I started doing dog training. And there was still a lot of Keeler method yeah. things around there. Which, looking back, that stuff's kind of rough. Um, things have definitely improved in the dog training world in the last, I don't know, 19 years, since mm-hmm. 2004. Um, but you do learn some valuable things from that, including touch on how to correct a dog, which uh, some trainers don't really have the chance to pick that up today mm-hmm. because there's not they're not heavy into the corrections like, sure. like we were back then. So, yeah, I had, a, I had a great time with my first dog, Deuce, and then... That led me to get my second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and kind of here we are. So how did you go from the wilderness search and rescue to finding your way into the FEMA? Was it because of the connection to the fire department, or was it just kind of like a natural progression for you going from what you had done to getting into FEMA? So the the FEMA mission set was a little bit more interesting to me um, from the start, really, but Getting into FEMA with no dog experience on the search and rescue side as a civilian can be can be a challenge. It's FEMA is much more firefighter focused. Uh, there are some civilians. We have several civilians on my team, and that's how I started was as a civilian. So I value that experience that they bring. Um, for me, the mission set of doing urban search and rescue collapse structure searches was really intriguing to me. And so I got a second dog to do that specifically. And I brought him out, and, and those were the days, like Shirley Hammond was there. I was blessed with a lot of great mentors, and my dog totally failed the test. But okay. I'm like, oh, I'll bring him out one more week, and I'll bring him out one more week, and I'll bring him out one more week. And, you know, I ended up with this dog that was pretty good as a lifeline dog. And from there, the natural next step was, well, I want to go do actual searches. Mm-hmm. And most of the searches are in human remains detection. So I started focusing a little bit there. I still have a live find dog, but the human remains detection stuff is where a lot of the experience is now. Yeah. the And you gave me this coin bef- before we started here, and I appreciate that. So thank you yeah, for absolutely. that. Yeah. Absolutely. The, uh, and this is, you know, part of the, the FEMA task force or what you do with yep. this. For those who don't necessarily know the difference um, kind of give us an overview of what's the difference between the wilderness search and rescue community versus what you do for FEMA. Both, you know, get labeled search and rescue for the average person, um, but explain why they're different and and what makes them different. 
Sure. So uh, I could speak to the wilderness stuff here in California. It's largely volunteer based. Mm-hmm. Um, there's three kind of certifying organizations within California on the wilderness side, which is CARTA, WOOF, and Monterey Bay Search Dogs. Um, The FEMA side is not really volunteer-based. It's firefighter-based. Our our mission set is different in terms of where we go and how we go. The nice part about wilderness searching, if you have a human human remains dog on the wilderness side, you can search several times a month. You could be really busy and active. Um, that doesn't happen as much on the FEMA side. Um, so wilderness is, is largely based outside mm-hmm. from anywhere from a type one, which is above 7,000 feet down to your, your urban areas. And okay. it encompasses a lot of disciplines, including trailing dogs, uh, air scent dogs, uh, human remain detection dogs, and there's, um, differences in rules. Mm-hmm. On the wilderness side in California, they really like to see a find, refined mm-hmm. behavior out in the wilderness. Uh, we don't do that in FEMA. We mm-hmm. do uh, focused bark at the source, and that's that's a prescribed alert. Okay. Wilderness, there's lots of alerts you can choose from, um, and they do a lot more. Like I said, different disciplines, including water searches, which we don't really do mm-hmm. in FEMA. Uh, so we get a lot of air sensing dogs there. Um, and a lot of people who are um, wanting to get back to their community. So excellent volunteers. They really put their heart and soul into it. Yeah. Um, the FEMA site does take a little bit more training. There's all, in addition to the dog stuff, you have to come with a lot of certs, including some hazmat, some mm-hmm. decon. Um, you have to learn how ICS structure works. And it's, um, I don't want to say more professionalized, but it's mm-hmm. it feels more professionalized. From Just from what I've seen, it, it's... FEMA gives you a lot more schooling, I would say. Like, there's mm-hmm. actual courses to go through where in the um, search and rescue, the wilderness style, most often, like you said, it's volunteer. They don't – there's not as many schools either mandated or available because they don't have, like, quote, unquote, a professional status if they weren't attached to a fire department or a FEMA task force, et cetera. So it seemed like a lot of times um, – you know, the, the desire to be educated is there by a lot of them from, from my point of view. But I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but FEMA, because of it's an organization, there's mandated things they have to go through, as you just explained. Is that kind of a correct as, uh, assumption or how I've, how I've seen it myself? Right. So the idea of operating in a collapsed environment is inherently dangerous. Mm-hmm. So there there are safety classes that come with it. There's decon classes that come with it. You know, some of our deployments have been to these large burns. And that stuff's just terrible to be in. Like, mm-hmm. my personal my personal opinion, I think putting volunteers in that position where yeah. there's those carcinogens, where they lack things like um, presumption in terms of um, work-related illnesses, that's a really tough thing for a sheriff to do. And we could do it as firefighters. That's kind of where we're comfortable operating. Sure. So we... When I go to work as as a captain on the truck, we probably set up an ICS structure three times a day. Yeah, it's just a natural thing um, that we do. So we're a little bit more formal in the training. Our our new handlers go to a one week course. Uh, that's a FEMA course. That is how search dogs work. And if they're getting a dog from the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, they spend a lot of time down there getting mm-hmm. trained. It's closer to the police side yeah. there, where they have kind of an academy. Mm-hmm. 
What is an ICS structure for those that don't know, including myself? Okay, so ICS is an incident command gotcha. system. It mm-hmm. um, it identifies who you report to, and it's an accountability system. So we set it up on a fire where we'll have the incident commander, and we stay as a crew on my truck, but we are part of a larger organization. Mm-hmm. So it's really a way to stay organized and keep accountability. Yeah, and I guess so the cop release called command post. So yes. yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, so our CP is your ICS. So and that's the that's the thing that happens all the time in our world. There's a lot of things that get termed differently, but they mean the same thing, and which is makes being a dog person hard and knowing what term to use where you're at. And both of us coming from separate professional worlds, we know you stick cops with firefighters. We're going to say things differently but mean the same thing. And then, like I said, we now we add the layer of dog world on top right. of it all. It becomes yeah. even more confusing sometimes. So, like you said, they, there's that level of education and structure and uh, programs to go through. How do we kind of crack the code to help those that do more of the wilderness recovery or wilderness search and rescue is what has been discussed or what are things that could be available for those individuals who really are trying to learn more, be better prepared, have better education to go on deployments? Sure. The, the FEMA world is better at doing like the workshop sort of thing. So we're putting on a workshop in January. We are going to have the three Northern California task forces open up their training sites, which are not normally accessible to people so that wilderness mm-hmm. and FEMA handlers can come out and get their dog on the pile and see see how they do. Um, mm-hmm. What we found with some of these deployments is when people don't have the opportunity to search in a disaster area, they want to go out and help. They're doing their best to help. But if you have not trained for it, I don't know that you're doing a service to the missing person by being there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for instance, uh, in Paradise and some of these other fires, we are changing what we train on, mm-hmm. right? Not a lot of people train on cremated human remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, they train on sort of stinkier, wet things in the HRD world, the human remains detection world, but they want to go help. So they're looking for a new scent. And they're also looking for that new scent in a new environment that they've never trained in, in the, which is the disaster area. And we know here in California, we're going to have another Paradise or North yep. Complex or Lahaina. Um, we also know that there's a big earthquake coming in our future. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's time to close the gap between the FEMA, you know, we are the fire side of the house and the law enforcement volunteer there is some knowledge sharing that needs to happen. Um, we need to be able to teach the volunteers how to operate safely. Sure. Um, they need access to our sites because they need to know before they go out that their dog will perform mm-hmm. in that environment and that their dog will find what we think we're looking for, whether that's cremated human remains or whole bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that needs to, that, that's one of the big things that I'd like to see happen and I'm passionate about. Because frankly, on the fireside, we can learn a lot from the wilderness folks. Sure. They are incredibly passionate. They find a way. They mm-hmm. pay for their own gas, their own equipment, all that. These are sort of the dog people that are nerds like yeah. me. Yeah. So I, I love that part of it. And we can learn how to do better wide area searching from them. When we go out to a hurricane, it is wide area searching. And we don't train that on yeah. the FEMA side. We go out to our, our little pile and we train at the same six locations, and that's kind of it. So I think we have a lot to learn from both sides. Yeah. 
So coming into as a, let's say, I want to get into FEMA. I want to be a FEMA dog handler. What are the, like, how does it start? And what are the objectives through the training that get you to that certification point? Um, And what I'm getting at is, so for example, from my side of things, not being ultra familiar with FEMA, I understand significant amounts in certain ways and I've talked to different people. So I'm, I wouldn't call myself in any stretch of the imagination well-informed, but I know enough to be, let's say, dangerous is a common term. So I know directionals is a common thing that's very important in the FEMA task force, but I also see from the trainer side, there's a bleed over because directionals, for example, are so frequently focused on because it's a big certification aspect. So I know that as one little part, but how, describe like so those who are listening or watching what is the process like you got the dog or you know in some cases can you have your own dog or do you have to get a dog given to you and then what's those processes to there to get to certification sure so each task force does a little bit differently we at task force three have a combination of people who have started puppies and raised them through the certification process. That's what I, I prefer to do. Mm-hmm. We also have people who get them from the Search Dog Foundation or from other sources. Sure. There's other groups out there that do sort of the fully trained dog. Uh, the process is a two-step process. We have uh, what's called a Foundation Skills Assessment, or FSA. If you pass that whole thing in, um, in sort of one shot, mm-hmm. then you get to go on to the big national test. So the foundation skills assessment is where we see a lot of the basic dog obedience stuff. Okay. Starts with some aggression testing, human aggression testing, canine aggression testing. Um, They have to do things like a long down out of sight. They have to do um, some healing off leash. Um, They have the directionals that you talked about where you have to be able to send them to different platforms. Um, we have some agility where the dog has to climb a ladder and cross things and make sure that he has he or she has good footing. Um, and then we do a small search problem, a small indication station to prove that the dog will actually alert where mm-hmm. they have to bark continuously for 30 seconds at a victim. And then we have a small search problem. You pass all that, then you're on to the big test. Okay. And the big test is a certification evaluation. Our certification lasts for three years. The certification... Um, looks like two piles okay you have 20 minutes to search each pile one of the piles you have full access so you can walk with your dog the whole time the other one is limited access so you have to be able to send your dog on a pile and they will place a victim where the dog will have to alert out of sight of the handler to show independence commitment source all Mm -hmm. the things we like if you pass those well then you're a certified team Um, right now there's about 280 certified life find teams in america and we have uh, 80 human remains detection dogs. So okay. You, for Lahaina, you saw 40 of them go there. So we sent about half of them. So is the certification for the human remains basically the exact same? So the only difference between live find and human remains would be the source's human remains. And the source, obviously, live find is going to be the live human in there. So are the standards the same? Is just one's the this odor and one's that scent? Correct. So... When I started with my first uh, HRD dog, George, you had an option to do a passive alert or a focus bark. Mm-hmm. Um, they went all to the focus bark with the new mm-hmm. dog, so they grandfathered some of these people who had um, dogs already. Uh, we're all focus bark now, and the test is exactly the same. Instead of uh, a living human subject, we replace them with um, 
with material. You okay. Know what I mean? Yep. Material with. So you bring up an interesting point about the bark as the indication. Um, was the reason? You know, this is just my assumption. Is the reason for the bark because passive indications could be harder to read, <clears throat> specifically at distances for the work that you guys do, um, whereas the barking is pretty demonstrative. And like you said, out of sight, if the dog's barking at it, obviously the known to the handler, which to me would be like a steady pace bark, yep. saying that they're here. Is that the reason why the switch happened? That Yeah, so there are some disasters that we know we don't want to put even the rescuers up. It's so tenuous up there that we'll send the dog. It's got four paws. It can distribute its weight better. It's a mm-hmm. little safer. So um, the idea of being able to see or hear an alert out of sight was the main reason. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't do the fine refine behavior like you see in wilderness because, frankly, it's dangerous to cross a pile. Sure. We don't want the dogs up there any more than they have to be. So it's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. So with the idea being we could send the dog up there, the dog will search independently, even if we can't see it, mm-hmm. and will let us know if we need to come up on the pile. So here's an interesting one. This was uh, came up in conversation with another urban search and rescue group I dealt with. And that was the use of condition reinforcers, also known as markers, for those uh, watching listening. Um, how has that been looked at, or is that something that's evolving within the search and rescue community? What are the pros and the cons to a condition reinforcer system of communication being implemented in urban search and rescue? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's evolved over my time. Um, before, we would put somebody in a hole and say, Reward on seven barks or a good series, and and that was it. And it's similar to the bite work in that sense because mm-hmm. your helper is really training the dog at that point. And we try to take new people and teach them how to be a good helper, um, but it doesn't always work. So we need highly motivated dogs that sometimes they don't always get that big party, um, but that's what we shoot for. Yeah. So um, with that being said, the condition reinforcers, you're starting to see people start to do those types okay. of things. Uh, it's great. The National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, they are introducing ideas like that because they're giving a dog to somebody who may have zero dog experience. Sure. So when you talk about condition reinforcers or primary prey object or all those terms, for a lot of people, it's over sure. their head mm-hmm. and, and they may not care. Um, that being said, the benefits of using them is is so clear now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started, we didn't do a lot of play with the dog off the pile. It was very much you sent your dog and you stood there and mm-hmm. off they went and it was a serious thing. And they would even tell you, don't play with your dog. You want the only play to be with a victim. You're building mm-hmm. victim loyalty. Mm-hmm. And that's just not totally true, as it turns out. The condition reinforcers has shown us that as we build our relationship with the dog, build our communication with the dog, that the dog's improvement, like, through the roof. Mm-hmm. So um, we do some things very poorly, both on the wilderness side and the FEMA side. Um, we still reward 100% of the time. There is no variable reward system uh. generally happening. So every time the dog finds somebody, they're getting a reward. We're not really good about working blanks. Yeah, I mean, we got guys who have three hours before they have to go back on duty, so they want to find something and give the dog the big party. And this idea of working blanks is now just entering mm-hmm. that we need to do more. We don't work on leash. 
But mm. every disaster I've been to, I've worked my dog on leash. Yet mm. we don't train it enough. Ah. So there's like some areas of improvement that we we know we need to do. Mm-hmm. But it's also really challenging because when we go to the actual disaster, it will be different than everything we've trained for up sure. to that point. Every time. Yeah. Um, and that's true whether we're going to a mudslide, a town that burned over. Nobody ever expected anything like that. Um, those things are hard to build. You can't build a city that's burned over. You mm-hmm. can't build a wet mudslide. Um, so we select dogs that, that are able to do those kinds of things. What type, on the condition reinforcer aspect, what has been a common condition reinforcer? Is it just verbal? Are you guys using uh, clicker, whistle? Is there, what, have you, what have you seen? So what's, what's coming in now is the, the phrase, get it. Okay. So that's, that's a reward uh, at source. So we will do that two times, actually. People do it uh, when they are doing the handler reward. And they'll also, as a call out to the victim, to pop that toy out when I say get it. Mm-hmm. That's the most common one. Um, we see yes sometimes. So those are those are the handlers that are taking the next step on condition reinforcers, and they will do the yes with a reward at the handler. Mm-hmm. People have this fear of I'm calling my dog off the victim, yeah. and um, the dogs know. The dogs know the game that we we can do that. But there's a lot of people who are afraid to not reward 100 percent of the time, or ever call their dog off scent. So uh, it, it's it, it's it's funny because there's similar obviously parallels that we go through in the police dog world where a lot of the same beliefs and same things were happening there. Um, the marker has grown. The use of a condition reinforcement marker has grown tremendously in the law enforcement community over the past let's say ten years. Um, it's cool to see that that trend is starting to happen within this because. Operationally, there's tons of benefits to be able to have a signal to my dog that are just ways to communicate that are more effective or give me more options in an operational environment. So thinking about it, um, like when I was working with the other group, was the use, finding a specific whistle that they could use for the almost what you just said. So that way, even the person in training, when they're playing the victim, if they hear that whistle, they would know for sure right. I can reward. Uh, where before, like you said, they were listening or trying to see or whatever it was, um, the use of condition reinforcer seemed to also really help handler knowledge. Like the handler, to, in order to do it, had to know their dog was on right. odor. There was you you weren't going to guess anymore. Now the cool part was how, like anything else, everything's implemented in little steps. So the beginning step, of course, was the handler knew the location. So when the dog performed the task, they could blow the whistle. The unique thing about that too was finding the right kind of whistle because the firefighters brought into play the part that a lot of them had. I would say the normal like referee style whistle. Yep. Um, for how they communicate or to signal certain things. So they didn't want to go with that because at a disaster site, those things could be happening yep. somewhere and they didn't want the dog to be confused by that. So they landed on a whistle that had its own unique sound, but still strong enough that you could hear it from distances and so forth. Um, and I thought that was a really cool, unique aspect. And it matched something that I had done operationally too within the programs I had worked with in the past that we used whistles, silent whistles in this case, dog whistles, that for the same similar type of aspects, which meant the dog was at a distance from us. Mm -hmm. So using a word 
would not be heard or could not be used due to the conditions that we were in. Um, so that whistle was another tool. So like you, uh, what you described, there was a verbal condition reinforcer and this one was a mechanical, yep. such as a whistle. Um, what, what would you see as pros or cons um, as far as to say something like a whistle in that environment? Was it what we found that yeah. being specific would be really important? So uh, f- as far as condition reinforcers, it's a really interesting one. We talked about how things have sort of evolved over the years. When we started, we never wore any sort of protection on our faces, and now we wear a face mask because we mm. understand all that concrete dust yeah. is really bad for us. The fire, the the stuff that comes from those wildland fires is also bad for us. Mm-hmm. So do we train in it? We sure should, mm-hmm. right? Like, Absolutely. Like if you get out to that that disaster and you can't communicate with your dog because you've never worn a mask and tried to talk to him, it's an issue. It's an issue. So you can't blow a whistle through those things. Nope. So do you go with like an e-collar and find a way mm-hmm. to tap them? Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. you have several spotters out there who can mm-hmm. keep your dog out of the mm-hmm. dangerous area? It's a real question. It, you, and that's funny because one of the things that we talked about was the use of the hunting collars that when the dog went stationary would beep by itself. And that has a pretty strong, unique yep. beeping sound. Um I could see that having a good potential, and almost at that point, it would be conditioned. It'd be like a, it, it's a keep going signal for the dog. Like if they'd hear that, they know probably here soon I would get an actual condition reinforcer. So it is a communication. I was a keep going signal kind right. of thing. Um, there was two ways to do it. Actually, there was one. It beeped while they were working. That was one. So I think it's in motion. It beeps. Uh, then you can flip the switch and go beeping when still. Right. So that was the other option. Um, the pros and cons, if I remember when we talked about that, was at a disaster scene, there's lots of things kind of beeping, buzzing, machines, mm-hmm. jackhammers, whatever. Yep. And the positive was, yes, in some cases we could probably hear it, but what happens if that fails or we can't? What do we do now? Right. So it's still the importance of the basic core foundations of reading your dog, being in the right positions, having more than just one way to communicate. Um, it, it's, it does seem to be, to me, a very interesting thing to kind of grow through right now within your community. What condition reinforcer, mechanical, verbal, if it's mechanical, what mechanical one do we use? Right. Um, and then there's the technology part that's starting to really come in. Um, and that's it's super interesting because we work our dogs naked. Yeah. Right. They don't yep. wear a collar or anything. Because yeah. you don't want them getting caught on things. You don't correct? want them getting caught yeah. on anything. So that's that feeling has changed a little bit. Yeah. We saw dogs even in Hawaii wearing booties, which they would never wear booties on a rubble pile. Mm-hmm. Like that was mm-hmm. like sworn from day one we shall not wear collars or booties on a pile and that's changing there are places where we can be smart about using things that will protect our dogs Mm -hmm. and give us better performance but Mm -hmm. i think in that in that arena they go direct reward and that's it yeah there are their condition reinforcers are a training thing what is so because again this is just me looking at it from my perspective so to me, depending on a certain disaster scene or disaster site, a condition reinforcer would be extremely helpful because my dog's in the place barking. I I understand the tough part of 
make a decision. Maybe I, it's not safe for the handler to move up to that spot. So having that condition reinforcer, I can signal you're right, come back to me. We can find ways, I guess, to best landmark that spot. Yep. Has that been talked about, discussed? Like what's the pros and cons? If the dog stays in training, barking at the spot, they always get rewarded by the victim. Yep. But operationally, the victim is not going to reward them. That's not going to be possible. And what do you do when you can't get to the dog due to the hazards of the environment? What is What happens now? It's a great question. <laughs> I don't know that we have enough actual fines of living people to be able to answer that. Okay. okay. Uh, I do think if you train with variable reward... The idea that your dog can't be rewarded there is not going to break them Correct. at that time. That's a huge point. So introducing that into the training is probably a really good idea for that, That's a great parallel to the bomb dog world. So the dilemma in that bomb dog world is the training was a lot of rewarding, you know, and then the methodologies frequently used was direct reward at source. So it meant throwing a ball or a toy or whatever. And as condition reinforcers caught on, the bomb dog community really embraced it because now we have a way I can still direct reward on occasion, but I can also use a condition reinforcer and I can also do a variable reward. Right. I don't need to throw a Kong at the bomb. Yes. Yes. So there's a similar dilemma that matches what you guys deal with from your world, which is, okay, the conditions may not be safe for reward. And you're absolutely right in the sense of, holy cow, when the bomb dog world especially during Iraq and Afghanistan when there was a huge methodology shift because the way military had trained bomb dogs prior to Iraq and Afghanistan was a very, what I would call like a proactive style bomb searching, which is really close by, lots of presentations, so on and so forth. And then the real world hit. And you couldn't be in that position with your dog because it was super hazardous to you. So then it became a lot more off-leash work, directional work, keeping distance between you and your dog, dog working independently, condition reinforcers because you need the dog to come back to you because you probably weren't going to go up to the dog. But then there was also the occasions when I was working with some guys from the EOD unit and they said, hey, can we train it or can you have it where your dog stays there and we move up to the dogs? Talk about a dilemma because in those cases, the guy's going up in a big green suit if they were coming up in person. Um, which is going to trigger some of the dogs depending on what they're trained right. to do. The other part that we had to train for was then robotics, pushing a robot up to that location, the dog holding for as, as long that was reasonable so that way they could accomplish what they wanted, which was to see the lay of the land, to know what was safe to do and not to do. And then obviously have the dog come back to us. And again, safety was the biggest uh, thing. I see very similar parallels in your world where, like I said, the dog is on indication. Um, You have to get there. And I would say lie, find, or HRD face the exact same conditions. So the same risks are there for the human handler to make their way up there or identify that spot and call us back. Are you guys using any type of technology to help in maybe location identification or location marking? Yeah. So, okay. so the, the difference between the live find and the HRD in that situation is time. Okay. So we will risk a lot more for a sure. living person. If it's human remains, we got days to take care of this and okay. make it safe. So 
uh, before we send anybody on it. But uh, if it's a live person and it's a live dog barking mm-hmm. there, there's going to be people going up on there. And, okay. and that's uh, to save a savable life yep. is something that we would risk a lot for. Um, in terms of where were we going with this? Technology integration. Technology. Yep. So um, one of the things that you don't realize as a dog handler is just all the layers of things that happen above you mm-hmm. on the actual disasters. Like we go out and we train and it's our lone little world with dog handlers. But when you go out on a deployment, you're going with a lot of people. There's a lot of resources and a lot of money mm-hmm. and politics enter it as well. So we look at it as dog handlers that we're trying to find missing people. But if I'm a manager and I'm in charge of this area, I'm looking at it as I need to clear all these houses. Yeah. So the value for us is our dogs find people, but the value for the people who pay the bills and send us to work is that the dogs say there's nobody here. Yeah. So that value is huge. And what we've seen in the in the disasters lately is there's a big move to mapping. So that is everything from did we search it? Was the house damaged? What did it look like? Take a picture, drop a pin. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that. Not at, you know, necessarily, we will certainly do it at the victim level, but we're doing it for every house. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, when we went to the Paradise Fire, the mandate was they want boots in every house. So 15,000 homes. That takes a while. Yeah. Um, You can't search. You don't have enough dogs to do 15,000 homes. So there was strategic decisions that were made. Um, And I'm getting away from your technology question a Mm -hmm. little bit. Strategic decisions were made that we will search the high probability homes okay um technology has really helped us figure out what that is so while i'm sitting there looking at this house that has burned down i could pull up google maps and see what the layout of the house Mm. was where the likely the bedrooms were okay where the bathrooms were where people might hide in a firestorm so that helps me limit where i put my dog in jeopardy to go search Um, we could see whether or not this house normally has cars out in front and how many they have because one of the one of the criteria for where we we're going to search a paradise initially was if you see a car in the driveway, we're going to search it because that means there might be somebody there. Mm-hmm. So we could see that kind of stuff using technology. We have um, mapping systems that do all kinds of marking, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's things that happen at every disaster. Like we never agreed for the first three days of what the mapping iconology would Uh. be so team a would be marking things differently from team b and finally we said come on guys we gotta we gotta get on the same page here yeah creating so technology has become a huge part of it where they pass out ipads mini ipads Mm -hmm. and the um, communication is much better than it used to be Um, one of the big things was all the street signs go away and so mapping becomes a real problem of knowing where you are and technology has kind of solved those things it's great for the USAR world. On the wilderness side, it's great for the missing person because we have way less missing hikers now because of technology. Yeah. They can find their way back. They can communicate. They can leave messages for people. And <clears throat> you've seen a drop in the number of certified area dogs because mm. you're not getting enough area call-outs sure. for dogs. That actually nowadays. makes sense. There, has there been – so in certain disciplines like where I came from, law enforcement, military – there's becoming more, and I, I already kind of know the answer to the USAR part of it, but the integration of technology with the dog. So, for example, like um, bomb dogs now, certain bomb dogs on their harnesses will have other sensors on there that pick up other things as well as have photographic ability sure. um, or 
constant video feed. Um, I understand, obviously, when the dogs go slick, you can't really have anything on them. There, I have. There's things in development that I have seen that are starting to become internal. So, like the microchips, they yep. can do a lot more now than they used to, and that includes active GPS tracking. Um, so that's under the skin with some ability. That's I, I would say we're still a little ways away from getting USAR level where right. all dogs have that. Um, but what I was thinking of was the use of drones in connection with the dogs being deployed. So therefore, as a dog's working a pile or working an area, there's also a drone operator kind of watching from above, giving or seeing some real time. And then there's that ability to tag a location really fast because you have the drone right above that can drop the pin for you. Right. And then you have the ability to bring the dog back safely without putting another human in, in danger to get to the dog to reward or bring the dog back to you. Have you guys – and I've seen some search and – I would say this is more the wilderness or the uh, um, rural you know, search and rescue kind of teams uh, utilizing some drones and things like that. Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it looks like it's a conjunction thing. Some of it's to site survey. Yep. Okay, yeah, we can put dogs out. Or some of it is in conjunction with have – you, have you seen any of that with what you guys do with USAR? Yeah, the, the UAS teams are – are up and coming. We saw them in Paradise, which I think we're coming up on five years okay. since then. Um, they did such a good do- job mapping that they couldn't release the video wow. for fear of somebody would zoom in uh-huh. and find a body before sure. we had a chance to recover them. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like damage assessment stuff, they're fantastic. Yeah. One thing that USAR doesn't do that Wilderness does, Wilderness is able to put those GPS tracking collars on their dog. Yes, so correct. you can track where the handler walked and you can see that their dog went five times as far and, and mm-hmm. what they covered. So it's good for getting coverage idea, which impacts your probability of detection and, and your decisions about whether you need to put more assets at work there. We checked the box yeah. on the USAR side. Okay. Did we search that house? Yes, check the box. We don't have quite as good of technology for the dogs because they do work slick. Yeah. Um, what I would love to see is better temperature monitoring yeah. on the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, that's all handler dependent right now. Like there have been studies with how we do the internal temperature stuff, but that's not something that we have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, the military gets great stuff. But even when I was on the SWAT team as a medic, mm-hmm. We didn't have night vision. Like, sure. We didn't have any of those toys. Um, it would be great if we could get some of them sure. and they get passed down, but it's just not there yeah. yet. The it's, dogs are super expensive. Yeah, uh, of course. For, for the task forces, and we don't always get the same amount of toys that we would like. Yeah. The comms guys get lots of radios. They could talk to Mars, but... Um, you know, you try to get a canine litter for your dog, and it's you know you're asking for somebody's firstborn child. Sometimes. Yeah, right. There was a. Um, I, I mean, you're right. I have seen a lot more technology overlaid with the wilderness search and rescue side of things. Uh, a friend of mine in Holland who does search and rescue, um, what they started doing, like in addition to the GPS aspect of the dogs, was the handlers all wore GoPro or body camera, and it paid off later on on one of their deployments and that was where they had searched an area for a body didn't find it and then i don't know the exact details but days later whatever it was a body was located in the areas where they had searched and they said there was definitely no body there 
the, what they were able to do was overlay the GPS and the GoPro or the footage from the body camera to that location to and prove. show there was nothing yeah. there. So it, what it gave them intelligence-wise was the, the, the criminal, the murderer there, was watching the news, had seen where teams were at, went there, placed the body. Yeah. Then they used technology to ping cell phones to a certain time frame. And lo and behold, through some additional information, they were able to locate who was the criminal in this case. And I thought that was an enormous ability to use technology that's really beneficial, not only in an operational setting like that, but also after action, reviewing things that we've done good, bad, kind of could use improvement um, because it's done that to the cop world, you know. At first, you know, I was the generation we didn't have like cameras were just in cars, and the, it depended where you work. Some agencies had them, some agencies didn't. Then, after I got out of law enforcement, due to all the a lot of the uh, social injustices that were occurring, body cameras have become the norm. Right. To, and then it also helped law enforcement because there was the after action, the ability to review things and to right. hold accountable. Then the or other part right. was to improve like lessons learned yep. or here's how we did it right. I mean, and now we see that look at the school shootings that happened. You have the Uvalde school shooting. Everything was on video. Yep. Did not go really well at all, obviously. Then, you know, was it six, eight months later? Then the one in Nashville where those guys on body cameras handled their jobs, did what right. they're supposed to, followed procedures. And it was alert. Both are learning lessons. And without that footage, we wouldn't have that. Right. And it's cool to see, and I don't know if it's used very often. Is, is the use of body cameras happening more with fire departments just in general? No. Okay. No. And, and one of the large reasons is we call ourselves the fire department, but mm -hmm. about 1% of our calls are, are actual fires. Yes. Yeah. The rest of them, are, you know, 70%, 80%, even higher are medical calls. Yep. So the HIPAA laws, the HIPAA laws and all that. So in the firefighting world, we do a lot more video during training. Yeah. Um, and we do teaching using video and online things much more. Everything used to be in person. Now it's largely, mm -hmm. you know, um, we do it online stuff. Sure. Um, that being said, we video almost every run our dogs do um, in the USAR world. Okay. And that's great. I always wonder how many times people actually watch it unless sure. their dog was going to be <laughs> doing something super cool that yeah. they want to share. Yeah. So I'd like to see more of it. Yeah. And, and where I think I need to improve as a canine coordinator, one thing I love to do is, okay, let's watch the video together. Yeah. And we're going to look at how you, how you did, like you, you could have done differently, or are you reading your dog mm -hmm. correctly? Is mm -hmm. your dog in scent? Um, it's a huge area that we could do yeah. and we should do, yeah. but we, we really, I'm not being as good as I should be on it. Well, so. and, and, and I would say, you know, obviously for us, we're a little bit older and that wasn't a common thing. You know, I look at some of the 30 year olds I work with and cameras on them every, like their phones are out for everything. For everything. Yeah. So, you know, I've embraced it a lot now. So every seminar I go to, I usually have my GoPros with me, and whenever I can, a lot of people I throw them on them, yep. and we do. Uh, I call it deconflicting. You know, I took that term from the military side of things. We go there, we do whatever search is set up. Everybody's wearing cameras. Yep. Um, after each run, I kind of know what you know who's what and what cameras they're using. So anyway, when we get done, 
we go and review those as a group because I want everybody to to see and learn from each other first and foremost um, because there's great things to learn and there's ways to improve by watching others. Uh, you might see somebody do something that you were like, ooh, but it helped you. You might prevent yourself from right. doing the same thing. It just didn't happen to you that day. Yep. So that was beneficial. Um, there's also, hey, look how they did that. I didn't think of it in that way, but that was actually a pretty good idea to solve whatever that search problem was. Right. Um, I have found it to be extremely helpful. We've added it to actually to almost all the classes when we're doing handler classes was at the end of the day at a certain stage, it's always so we first make the handlers write down what they saw and what they did. Then we take the video and see how well does memory match up to what right. they did. And there's twofold for that. One is to help for better records keeping. What you know, the way you remembered it and what you documented didn't actually match what was on video. So from right. the law enforcement side, if there's a discrepancy, we need to figure out why that discrepancy occurred. Um, but from the trainer side of things, it was super helpful for handlers to learn how to read their dog and how they described what they saw. So when they're describing their dog working a distraction versus describing their dog when it was working target, right. you know, having them write it helped a lot to remember it. But then... Also, watching it, we got to see if there was discrepancies in the description. Or they saw additional behaviors in the video that they missed out on what they described. Right. And the whole goal is to find as many predictable and reliable indicators in behavior that we know to be true to a target versus these other ones that are known to be true to distracting or proofing or et cetera. Um, so, you know – Maybe us talking about it will help uh, inspire some other yep. of those in the search and rescue world to incorporate that same concept to film and debrief, uh, not just to film and, like you said, save it for it our social, social media, media. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or save it for our highlight reel, yeah. but to really delve into, and we call it dirt diving it and saying, okay, like pros, cons, yeah. you know, improvement, what's great, that kind of stuff. Well, I think video for me helped helped me really start taking the deep dive into training. Um, My former wife had this idea that she could cue her dog. So she had had a deaf dog. He was a human remains detection dog, and he was really good. But she could cue him into alerting. And that reliability question is the most important part of what we do. The dog has to be reliable especially on the law enforcement side where people's rights could be taken away. Now, we want to be really good on the FEMA side, but we're we're recovering human remains. Mm-hmm. We have a slightly different standard. We're, we go at it a little differently. But that videotape was like, wow, I need to really be careful and be better because I could cue a dog. Mm-hmm. And that that idea of not being reliable really bothered Mm-hmm. Her, it really bothered me, and it was how do we build a more reliable dog than what we've done? Yeah, and that that started me down kind of a rabbit hole. Um, one of my mentors was a guy named Don Yarnell, mm-hmm. who started the mm-hmm. LA Police Dog oh, yeah. Program. He's yep. old school as can be, super gruff. Mm-hmm. Like I hated that guy for the longest time, mm-hmm. but then he grew on me. Yeah, and I loved yeah. him. Yeah. Um, because he would just call it like he saw it. And he yeah. would say, yeah, you screwed that up. Yeah. Don't do that. And it was like very humbling. Um, but from him, I, I learned that there were other ways to do it. Yeah. 
Whereas before it was, you know, my local people who I would a mentor mm-hmm. and was super experienced because they had trained two dogs to yep. certification and that's your expert as opposed to somebody who's trained hundreds of dogs sure. of different breeds with different indications in different environments. Like we need to seek out those people. And so Don was one of them for me and he, sure. he spun my head into all kinds of different things um, that I still think about to this day. And Don died like, Five years ago, I think. Yeah, maybe a little more. It might be longer than that. Yeah. yeah. So the so n- now this brings up. I'm curious to get your insight on. There's the training side of the house. Yeah. And then there's operational side of the house. Sure. What would you say are common oversights that occur? that from the training isn't bridging the gap to operational? What would advice or what things would you recommend to, because you've done operational and you've obviously been on the training side, that's your, like a lot of your bread and butter. What can be, what is like I said, what would be advice that you would say, hey, this needs to be considered more frequently or doing this will help you be better prepared operationally? I think the benefit of having some deployments on my belt is I've learned a lot on each one. And what I've learned is that our training doesn't match how we deploy. So that's that's shown itself in a few ways. Some of it you can solve, some you can't solve. So um, the very first disaster I went to was the San Bruno pipeline explosion. Okay. Um, I think nine, eight or nine people died in that one. And um, they sent out wilderness teams. And then they, they did not have... FEMA HRD dogs at that time. So they used dogs that were specialized mm. in cadaver. And my dumb little first dog, who's cross trained, went in, had an alert. I told somebody about it. They went in with their specialized dog and they came out and loudly said, There's nobody here. Nobody's here. No, nothing to see. And I was kind of like heartbroken a little bit. Like I was super proud of my dog. Well, it turned out. Two days later, they researched the house, and there were three people there. Mm. So my dumb little cross-trained wilderness dog working in this disaster environment was right, and I was ecstatic about that. So one thing I've learned is you have to train in the environment that you plan on deploying. So if you're going to go work burned homes, you have to find a way to work in burned areas. It's different. Like the, the, The environmentals of that the dogs need to experience it before they're expected to perform. The other part is the scent picture, especially mm. on the HRD side. We test to a standard that's 300 grams of an item. You pass that test, you are a deployable dog. Okay. That deployable dog the next week could be asked to go search for cremated human remains in a city where 15,000 structures were destroyed. Mm. That's setting the handler and the dog up for failure. It's an impossible task. It's a, it, I firmly believe it's a different odor and that you cannot generalize from one type of odor, either whole body or 300 grams, to that. Yep. I likewise think that you can't generalize from 300 grams to a whole body. Yeah. And we don't have the whole body provided to us as organizations or the cremated human remains. Yet the expectation is that we're going to go out there and be successful. How do we crack that code? Because you just hit the nail on the head in the fact that the number one thing I always hear is, especially in the HRD world, 
is getting material that matches what they're expected to find. What they do now is piecemeal whatever they can get from plastic surgeons, dentists, right. whatever they whatever free stuff they can get. Um, but you just said we're expected to find human remains in all these different conditions. How do we get there? How does that yeah. happen? I mean, I've never found a placenta in the wilderness, yes. but you could bet there's somebody out there training on it right now because that's what the, they have. Yeah, it's the most common. It's yep. the most common. That's what you can get your hands on. So the one thing I love about dog handlers is they figure out a way. Yep. And it, it's not always the best way, but they will figure out that I'm going to save my kid's teeth or draw my own blood or, mm-hmm. or get my placenta back or grandma's getting her hip replaced and I'm going to ask for the bones. Yeah. Um, I think that I hope that organizations at the – state and federal level are recognizing that we need to do more because that's how the door is open. Yeah. Like we do ghoulish stuff as yeah. HRD handlers. We all have a freezer that has stuff in it yep. that we don't tell anybody how we got it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And um, that's got to change yeah. if, if they want us to be successful. I mean, like you said, if the government relies on these teams to serve them, to help find, you know, victims, um, or to be used in criminal cases, of course, I think it's a duty to give the tools that are needed. It it just, I totally agree. It needs to be set up in a way that has accountability tracking and everything else. Uh, Now, whether that's through a specified institution or deferring it to the fire department or whoever, that would be the custodians or the handlers of these things but they need to be there because sure. right now with everybody, like you said, finding a way to do it and some of those cases creates more issues because what they have to use either doesn't match or it's not even what they would be finding. Yeah, and, and on the law enforcement side, you look at it and you're, you look at your narc dogs, right? Correct. And they find cocaine and heroin and meth. Mm-hmm. You don't train them on meth and go, good luck, guys. Yeah. Also make sure you find the heroin and the coke because that's important too. Yeah. But we know you'll do a good job. Yeah. That would never happen. Uh-uh. But we're doing it. That's yep. kind of the world that we live in. So you find handlers who are super motivated and will spend their own money. The yeah. the, yep. uh, the Center for Forensic Training and Education, CFTE out mm-hmm. in Ohio, does a fantastic job with full bodies. Yeah. Like, that should be an annual requirement that you go out and you get exposure to that because it's different. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Um, but to get access, people are flying to Ohio to do it because yep. there's only a few places you could do it in the country, and it's super important. And the handlers recognize it, but they don't get the support. Yeah. Um, so there's organizations that are starting to help out. I started a nonprofit called HD Search Dog Fund. We're going to help pay for training so that people can get access to those okay. types of things. Spikes Canine Find does it as well. Yep. Um, and it gives people the opportunity to go be competent. Mm-hmm. And people are paying out of their own pocket to be competent for the citizens of the communities they serve. And that's, mm-hmm. they shouldn't have to do that. Yeah. And I'll link those nonprofits in the show notes of this podcast. That way people can find it and, and either contribute by donation or reach out to you guys uh, for those that need the help. But yeah, I think one of the biggest things, you know, like you mentioned, the drug dog world, the DEA supports making sure drug dog teams on every level get the narcotics they need. Um, and if and in cases where they can't, 
agencies have found ways to get what they need to train on so they're trained properly, that same thing has to happen within that. Yeah. And FEMA uh, has started. They, they allow task forces to buy a kit okay. now. Um, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, not It's not mandatory. Yeah. Um, but neither is having HRD dogs for every team. So I'm hoping it's changing. I know at the state level, uh, they are going through the process of coming up with best practices because Paradise was the fluke of a century. We'll never see it again. Mm-hmm. And then we had the North Complex two years later. We had Lahaina this year. So mm-hmm. I think that there are going to be some best practices out there. I think uh, the scientific world needs to help us out a little bit uh, by showing whether or not a dog trained on what mm-hmm. we're what we have available yep. will actually be able to generalize an alert on humated hu- human cremated remains mm. or even a whole body. And I have my suspicions on how those dogs. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I know Dr. Nathan Hall and Paul Bunker did a volume of odor study, and that was uh, basically looking at are the dogs just because you trained at this level would the dog find it at other levels? And in short. The Cliff Notes version is um, 10 times up or 10 times down, the dogs were not accurate. I think it was a very like single-digit accuracy level. Now, but once it was reinforced at whatever spread that was, yeah. dogs were, became very accurate at it. So it showed you couldn't make the assumption that if you trained at with this, let's say, you know, the common term is weight, whatever weight you're using, would equal to the other. The other part that was really interesting – to the point you actually made a little while ago was it smelled differently. It didn't really come off same odorish or odor odiferous. That was a word I use. I get to learn yeah. odiferous. It was very different. It yeah. did not have the same smells as it did at this volume. So for sure, that's got to be really accurate for human remains. If we're training on Frequently, they can, the history and frequency for the dog is, like you said, a small jar with tissue yep. in it. But we're expected, the dog, to understand that a full body buried or underwater would mean the same thing. And it's really interesting to, like, for example, what this made me think of um, watching a lot of the water cadaver work. A lot of times it's with a live diver right. down low Sometimes with material, sometimes not. Um, I, you know, I, this depends on where you're at. I've seen some do yep. both. And I'm not an expert on water, but that seems like you're mudding the water. For sure. But then there's the ones that swear by it. And, and, yep. and it's just like what, came, what comes from the police and military world. There's a lot of things we swore by. Like, oh, it completely works. I know it does. Until there was really good testing. Um I think, and right now, the testing comes from the real-world real, real world deployments for the HR side when it comes to water recovery, I would say. Um, but there's also not a whole lot of data collected on what was found maybe after these dogs had worked in area. Or, And I've noticed, and I want, this brings me to a bigger question, of the <laughs> record-keeping aspects of yeah. uh, human remains dogs more specifically. I, again, have seen it. All over the place. I've seen really good teams with great records, and I've seen some go. I don't really record much. No one's told me I needed to, or I, yep. it's not part of our culture in this training group, or what have you. Um, 
what's your thoughts and feelings and what advice would you give when it comes to the record keeping aspects? I think I've, I've lived through the whole cycle of never video yourself. Don't keep any records. Make sure all your records are perfect that your dog finds it every time. Yeah. To write down everything, show your mistakes, show that you're working on your mistakes and, and make sure you have detailed records. I think it depends. So on the wilderness side, which is more law enforcement focused, there is a much higher standard mm-hmm. as there should be. On the fire side, record keeping is not used with the same purpose. So okay. it's record keeping done to make sure that you are doing the right number of reps on different scent sources and you're not always going with your favorite jar that you put out because it's easy. Um, so we use it differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't expect that we are going to be going to court. In fact, my group, we can't be used in law enforcement mm. cases. So nobody's calling us if yeah. they get a funny smell in the backyard. Um, and so in that sense, there's less pressure because sure. for me as a firefighter, if I'm not doing a criminal case or something mm-hmm. with a criminal mm-hmm. nexus, there's a lot less likelihood that somebody's yeah. going to be reading my notes mm-hmm. and with a critical eye. Mm-hmm. For me, it's how do I improve? Mm-hmm. So that's how notes are used kind of in my world okay. or training records. We could do a better job. We could formalize it. There's no standard. I can't mm-hmm. believe there's not like, I can't believe there's not a Cameron Ford app <laughs> for training records <laughs> yet. Yeah, 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 right? right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Charge nine ninety nine a month. Yeah, yeah and you'll exactly. Sell millions of them. Right? I know. One of those things. Maybe in the future, after I get done doing video podcasts and everything crazy else. Right. The um, it, it's so you know, just like you, I I've been through the generations of don't write anything down or just fill your four inch binder full of like how amazing your dog is and right. lawyers won't read it and blah blah. Um, what I have definitely learned is. Um, whether or not I'm one on the professional side, we had to keep diligent records, obviously for court purposes. What I later learned making friends with other trainers around the world was the data aspect was super helpful stuff that I wasn't paying attention to because what did I really care? I'm doing training. I'm hitting these things without really knowing there was patterns that were happening. And I was, Without seeing it in black and white in front of me, whether it be through an app or my own handwritten records, I wouldn't know that that was happening. Yeah. Um, it, it Down to locations. How many times have I been at this training location compared to other ones? Um, how many times have I used this type of you know target odor? Um, what kind of conditions am I training in? Right. All that stuff gets kind of overlooked when I didn't write things down, and I'm... I am not a person who's just naturally like super detailed with lots of writing of information. I've learned to become much better about that. And to your point, when things are easier for us to do or using an app makes like quick drop down. So it's more inviting for you to do it. Um, There is funny. You mentioned doing an app. So there was something that we were, I was talking to somebody we were looking at developing, but you know how the rings on your watch or, you know, or your phone Keep, so it makes you or incentivizes you to keep doing things. We were thinking of ways that that's how we could do record keeping an app. And it would show progress for you real time in yep. a sense, uh, which incentivizes you to close the ring. So you'll do that much more, let's say, searches of this or searches yep. of that or time frames or whatever it was to close your rings. So that way you could accomplish it, whatever the time frame was that you set. 
and that's just human psychology. You know, we became competitive. So yep. if you do those with your apps, you're going to actually go do this kind of stuff or yep. help you to go do it. <clears throat> so the, the other part I wanted to get back to for a second was on the lessons learned that you guys talked about from operational, um, what about the handler side of that equation? A lot of times we focus heavily to the dog, the dog training, dog experience. What are some things that are really important that don't translate well from training, but operationally the handler better be good at or fit for kind of thing? There's there's a whole mental part of an actual deployment that you you is really difficult to simulate in training. So we we put time pressures on people, which are unnatural for an actual search in a disaster environment to try to put pressure on them. But the pressures that come from an actual deployment are different and much more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were driving up to Paradise, we heard 15,000 structures and 1,500 people missing. So part of that is a mental discipline of, if I know I'm going to search, I'm going to be expecting in my mind that one out of 10 homes is going to have a missing person in it. 15,000 homes, 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. And that was not that was not good information to be basing my, mm-hmm. am I doing a good job or not a good job when I'm on house 22 and I haven't found anybody yet? Yeah. Um, well, that was just bad information. So we could screw ourselves up oh. by thinking too yeah. much sometimes. Yeah. Um but the big part is, you know, we know cop dogs can trail fleeing suspects. Why? Do they leave some adrenaline behind or all those endorphins? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's a study yet. Mm-hmm. But the dogs pick up on something. So when I'm stressed because I'm about to release my dog for the first time on a real search, they know this is not good and not normal. And that's why people flunk tests, right? Mm-hmm. It's because they get all... Yep. And it goes right down the leash and the dog feels it. And today is different than every other day. So managing that stress and being able to take a deep breath. And this is just like every other training day and, and feeling ready to do it is huge. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to remove all that stress of being on a search. And then there's the, we're here on day seven. We don't train seven days in a row for eight hours. So there is the handler's tired dog might be a little tired by the end of paradise my dog had three feet wrapped so he's a little sore um the food's not so good so you're getting a little cranky you're not finding as many people as you thought how do you train for that Mm -hmm. like how do you set your dog up in training to feel those things and still be successful so there is a huge mental part not to mention you see stuff there that people shouldn't see sure we're doing stuff where people shouldn't be and um, and when it's not what people expected, and I'm not out there and rescuing three life people today, all I found is 15 dead people. Yep. Well, God, that's that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's hard on people's psyches. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It, it, it will you bring into play lessons learned again that I bring over from the military world, which is we call FMP, full mission profile, and you create. These are these full exercises. Everything goes as if it was operational to include time frames, physical fatigue, mental fatigue um, versus the quick fun training weekends right. that, that typically happen. Um, the first easy one to do a lot of times and those watching and listening is the physical fatigue. Doing things as a trainer or instructor 
that fatigues the handlers out because when fatigue sets in, decisions change, brain chemistry is changing. Um, you know, when your heart rate changes, your breathing changes, oxygen to your brain is changing. Then after more time goes by, now you're hungry. We're not going to give you the right. sustenance that you've needed that you've been used to having. Give you water and things like that, but you'll be deprived of certain things. You're so, going to sleep in the field and yes, not in a bed. Exactly. So I've done things with groups before to simulate that stuff. Like, for example, made them get in the water in their full kit, whatever they're wearing. You're getting soaking wet. Now go work your dog. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. You walk squish, 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 yeah, squish. Yeah. And, and then you're not happy. You're not comfortable. We got to do this. What happens if a water line breaks and you're standing there? You're going to be soaked. Right. Does it mean you just stop and go change clothes? No. This is all you got. Yeah. Figure it out. Oh, see that nice little train that's parked right there? You're not going to use the steps to get in it. You're going to have to climb your ass in there. Right. And you're going to have to be able to pull yourself up, get in there. Full gear. Yeah, exactly. Get your dog in there first. Get you get in there. And looking at different things like how are they making decisions? Because in training, your trainer is giving you a lot of information, spoon feeding you, setting you up to like how this is going to work. But then on a real deployment, like you said, the command poster, as you guys called it, the IS, what is it? The incident command post. Yes, incident command post. Incident commander. Yep. So they're 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 busy doing a lot of other stuff. So you're on site, you're the dog person, you're expected to go do your thing. Yep, you are the expert. Yes, so you need to be able to assess an area at yep. first. You need to be able to go look at something versus just jump right in. I'm, I'm not going to go just walk into a structure. Because in training, we just walk right in a lot of times. Yep. I'm like, did you do a 360 of your area first to even see, was there somebody on the other side? You may have found a body just by simply walking around. Maybe you didn't see in the backside telephone wire, or sorry, or power wires actually are touching the structure. You don't know that from this point of view, right? So you couldn't just drop all skills and just focus on your dog. You had to still be a very aware handler of the safety and risk of your area. Establish what's around what I have to go search. Make sure that part's safe, and then get in. But a lot of times, because training is like, there's a doorway, there's a search, yeah. go do it. And they drop those skills of just being what we call having good situational awareness, knowing what's going around me, front of me, behind me, above me, below me, and then go, okay, how? what's the best way to tackle this? Though I see a nice open door, that may not be the best option. There could be a safer option, but it means right. going through a window, not that easy door. Yep. So, yeah. yeah it, you bring up great things. and. <clears throat> For us, we always talk about environmentals as being so huge on the dog, but we never really think about some of the environmentals that come with just deploying. Like, is your dog going to be able to sleep in a crate with 80 other people, 20 of which are going to be snoring or somebody <laughs> walking back and forth to the bathroom? Yeah. Yep. Or is your dog going to bark all night? Yeah. Um, is your dog going to be able to eat when they're stressed? Is your dog going to be able to get its rest like we want it to? Um and you as a handler have to manage all that while you're sleeping in the uncomfortable cot and working every day. So we're doing this training in January. We get three days in a row of deployments and we're going to keep them up at night with some presentations and Good. things. And they're going to be, they're going to be tired. Yeah. And they're going to see on day three, is my dog working like it did on day one? Am I working mm -hmm. like I did on day one? Or does this all suck? And you <laughs> not for me. Yes, exactly. So yep. I think there's, there's big lessons and, 
until you've gone on a few deployments with each one being different, it's really hard to say. And there's the unknown is always the worst part of things. Mm -hmm. So this brings me to tell us, you know, about one of your deployments and what was a deployment that really stood out to you that was something that either affected you or made you change as a handler? Like what uh, was profound because of this that was real world that didn't happen in training? So one of the one of the disasters I responded to is a Montecito mudslide. Um, we knew mudslides could be something we went to, but there had only been a couple really in California, and they were years before. So you can't train. For, mud sucks. Let's just like mud sucks. It gets everywhere. Um, you get stuck in it. It fouls all your gear. Your dog is in it. And it is a, a hazmat disaster, right? So when mud came through those houses in Montecito, it took all the all the sewers, mm. all the nasty stuff that's underneath your underneath your kitchen sink. It is it is and it mixed it all up, and it's all brown. So there, the Montecito mudslide was an eye opener in terms of the huge amount of devastation. Um, but also how do you work your dog when your dog can't walk through a majority of the area? Mm -hmm. And so we, we learned a lot of lessons there. Um, we learned how we need to bring in people to look at the area and say, this is a good dog assignment and this is not a good dog assignment. Um, and that was, that took a little bit of humbling because we want to work our dogs everywhere and we think our dogs can do it, but there are bad assignments for dogs. So that was an eye opener. Um, you know, Montecito, they, there were some lessons because in an area, people would be walking their dog to and from their search assignment. And we know that at least one person got missed a half a dozen times mm. who was out in the open, but you couldn't really, I mean, it, everything's brown. Yeah. But, do I need to train my dog to alert me to odor when my dog is on leash being walked to the search assignment? And for me, that was like, yes, I need my dog needs to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So whether he's on a heel or whether he's a free dog and on an okay, he needs to tell me about all odor all the time, no matter what. Because um, most of us get in the habit of I take my dog out of the car, I walk 20 feet, and then we go search. Mm. And the stuff is going to be where I think it is. So we very seldomly do the gotchas of searching. My friend Wayne Barron calls it the uh, the area of highest embarrassment, right? So we need to search the area of highest embarrassment a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen it in wilderness where the missing person is right by the command post and the handlers have been walking their dogs back and forth, but they're on lead, so they're not searching. Yep. So that was a training thing um, that I recognized. I had an argument with my wife for years. It was sort of a running joke of like, don't let your dog climb on the counter. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, you never know. He may have to do this one day, so I'm not going to tell him no. And sure enough, in Montecito, he was climbing on kitchen counters and bathroom sinks and all that stuff. And, um, you know, the dogs are going to have to do stuff you never you never expect. Yeah. Um, and that's why selection of the dog is, I think, the most critical piece of the puzzle. Yep. Without a doubt. I mean, that and it's rings true to so many other disciplines. And what you just talked about a second ago, the 
a lot of cops could relate to this, where they've had a perimeter up, they go search the hell out of it, they're in there for two or three hours looking, uh, and then they finally give up, they say the person's not here, and they're walking back to their car or by the cars of the person who initially, you know, started the chase or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden the dog, who's exhausted, dives off to the bushes off the side and then gets a and hold of food. Yeah. yeah. And he's been sitting there, you know, however many steps from the vehicles the entire time. Meanwhile, you went out and searched a mile ahead of you and, right. you know, all these conditions. Yeah. But to your point was in that kind of mindset for the dog because there's engagement, you know, there's a bite kind of engagement, the dogs are a little bit more motivated to know – Ooh, there it is. I want it. You can easily do that in training, like you just said, for the search and rescue part. Because if the dogs, you, you, you said you brought it up, they contextually learned that I work under this condition. Right. When I'm in this condition, we're not in work mode. Right. Even if I smell the thing, it doesn't matter because I'm we're not, not working. I'm not yet. cued. Yep. Versus going, hey, it can be found anywhere, anytime. And that's just, it is a training thing. It is exposure thing. Yep. Um, I want to go back for a second. When you first, you got, you got there, you got to the scene you're, as a handler, what was your first thought when you showed up, when you saw everything the way it was? Uh, it was bigger than I thought. Okay. Um, there was not a lot of information about how many are missing. Um, we knew they had pulled living and dead people off, but it wasn't marked. So we had residual scent pools where we would search. We would search a driveway for like an hour and a half and not be able to get to like a pinpoint location. And then a cop driving by, we were like, oh, yeah, we pulled somebody out of there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the, the – you got to see everything being set up from um, – Day one, we were kind of out by ourselves. Day two, we had support of getting lunches that day. By that night, we had some real decon happening. So you get to see how these truly big natural disasters play out and build. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was a good process. What did you do when you you got the dog out, you started searching, and you hit that mud? And then what happened? Yeah, it, it wants to suck your boots off. Yep. And so now we're going, well, my structural boots that I'm wearing at the collapse structure um, are not the right tool for this. So we ended up getting some waders. And, you know, we had guys down there from departments wearing their personal fishing gear. Like it was kind of the wild, wild west for a while where you had to figure out how to work it. Um, so it's sort of like, all I want to do is go, I just want to deploy my dog and search, but you can't do that. You have to prep. And once your dog has been cut off leash, well, now he's covered in mud and this nasty stuff. You got to take care of him. So there has to be support to be able to decon him. Um, so getting all that set up was, was critical because um, I didn't want to search my dog and have him up in a crate where he starts licking himself yeah. and now he's ingesting all those nasty chemicals. Um so that was huge. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were at Paradise, one of the things that when FEMA rolls out, it goes really big. It's it's a heavy rollout. We do 80 people, 80,000 pounds of gear. We have doctors from Stanford. We have hazmat specialists. We have structure specialists. But I'm just a dumb knuckle-dragging firefighter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And at Paradise, it rained. And somebody was very astute saying, hey, when it rains, it changes the pH and it'll burn. 
if you're not wearing mm. gloves or it will burn your dog's paw pads. Mm. So then decon becomes even more critical and we're deconning after every house that we go in and getting between their paw pads and and some dogs ended up with some thermal burns because mm. they were working in that ash and they couldn't get proper decon. Mm. Um, so all that stuff has to play through your head before you just walk up and cut your dog loose like we're at a training, yeah. right? There has to be the support behind you to keep you and your dog healthy. Mm-hmm. What did you get? Did you and your dog have a find on that search? Uh, we had finds in Montecito. Okay. Yeah. What was walk me through? what kind of happened and what that was from your perspective as a handler, as you deployed, you could just pick one of the finds that you had, you know, what, what did you see in your dog? Was there things different than training that happened? Like yeah. Parker? So, um, it's not ever quite as you picture it when you're fantasizing about my dog, Lassie going out and making the great find. It's, um, my dog alerted. There was nothing to see there. We were working some pretty pretty big piles in Mont in Montecito specifically. There is a channel where the water is supposed to flow. It gets caught up in these big like snags, and everything backs up. So we had big piles we were working. The piles were way more difficult than what we have in training. You would have houses, cars, telephone poles, trees, mattresses, all the stuff in your house, mm-hmm. and they're all super cramped and. And the thing about mud is it engulfs and that's mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. So we had an alert at the top of the pile. And it's kind of an oh crap moment of like, everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. My dog's mm-hmm. alerting. Mm-hmm. Do I really trust my dog here? And you mark it and you're on to the next pile. You're not waiting there and watching. And so for that particular one, they brought in these big excavators and they start delayering. And we came back a day and a half later, and they said, we haven't found anybody yet. Do you want to work your dog now that we've delayed? And I said, sure. And we actually had the find there where we could see the body and mm-hmm. see the person. Mm-hmm. And so that was, like, super gratifying. Yeah. But it also is super somber mm-hmm. where you have 30 people watching you work, all waiting to start that excavator back up because they want to go home. Yeah. And now you have a victim mm-hmm. right here. So um, emotionally, it's a high and a low at the same time. Sure. It's hard to hard to explain. You're super proud of your mm-hmm. dog, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's 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 a real serious thing. Is that a, a? I mean, I would think obviously for those who get into search and rescue to be mentally ready for that kind of unique emotional aspect and the reality of. That is that was somebody's life, yep. and that was um, someone's family members, and in some cases, the type of condition that the person may be in, which yeah. is could be horrific to look right. at and go through. Is there a level of like PTSD that you see, or that you've that you've seen handlers go through that maybe weren't quite ready for something like that? I don't think people stop to think when they're getting into search and rescue of what they may expose themselves to. Um, PTSD is like a, a big topic for me. We'll talk about it in a second. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I haven't really experienced it on the on the search and rescue front. It's more from the work stuff and being a paramedic and, and what you see day to day as a firefighter. Um, but there is certainly some parts of it that are terrible. Like when we're in Montecito and we're searching a pile 
and there's the dead family's golden retriever right there covered in mud. Like that messed me up way more yeah. than finding a sure. dead person because yep. I'm prepared for the dead person. We've been yeah. training for this. You yeah. don't think about all the collateral mm-hmm. parts mm-hmm. of like the cute family dog right yeah. there who also was innocent and died mm-hmm. in this horrible thing. Um, so I think people need to understand that if you're going to search and rescue, it's not the hero story of we rescued and saved this person's life and we walked them out. It's, it's more often you are finding people who are deceased Mm -hmm. and that's just the way it works. How did the dogs handle coming across the other deceased dogs or other animals for that matter? How have you seen dogs? Um, because that's not, again, something easily to train on. Um, how do the dogs go through it? Do you notice anything different? We we try to put animal distractions out, um, but it's I think it's different when you're when you're actually there. Um, so my dog definitely stopped and checked it out and spent a good ten seconds of that deep huffing at mm-hmm. source and mm-hmm. then moved on. Yeah, um, you know, and you never. <laughs> one of the things you learn about from being a firefighter is you go in people's houses, you have no idea from the outside of what you're entering. I'm sure as a police officer, you know, the number of hoarders in this country is way more than people think it is. Um, So in some of these disasters, you're going in, we found a full, a full deer, not dressed in a freezer. Okay. So do we train for that? Do we, (laughs) do we get frozen food and, and leave it out for five days and work around it? Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't do that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We should yeah. because we That's found that in, in all of these places that all of a sudden, like, and then you get the people who want to help. And I think I smell something over there. And, yeah. well, all the refrigerators have been off for a week now. <sighs> yeah. And everything's rotting everywhere. So, um, so yeah. I mean, for me, the the going back to the PTSD part, I think a lot of first responders are now recognizing the impact that the job has on them. Um as a professional paramedic, when I show up and your arm is cut off, I'm a professional. I'm mm-hmm. going to walk you through it. I'm going to do all the, the treatment protocols that need to happen. I'm going to give you great care. But I'm not going to react as a human. Mm-hmm. And I think that ability to dissociate from what is actually happening gives you great customer service, but it really screws up the individual. Mm-hmm. Because that tool that I employ there works great when I go home and my wife's annoying me. I disassociate and I'm yep. my, it is, you take your feelings out of everything. Um, and I think that's, you know, we have huge amounts of divorce. We have huge amounts of suicide and we have a lot of people who are drinking a lot and using weed mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. uh, much more than people want to talk about. So my wife and I started a nonprofit to help with that. And we, um, we send people and they go do plant medicine yeah. and it, it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the way. I, I know a lot of some of the special forces guys who I knew from the past, cops as well. Yep. Um, you hit the nail on the head. We get good at compartmentalizing. Yeah. We get good at shutting off emotion because we have to for some of the horrific things that we see and go through. And there is that overlapping effect um, because it goes into your personal life. You know, I can, I know for sure I am in that same situation. Um, because it's how you, it's how you get through those things. 
it's how you coped, um, but it also hardens you. And, and there's other people around you who are obviously very empathetic to a lot of things, and they wonder why you aren't. Yeah. And we aren't because we've become hardened through the things that we've seen, so that way we can survive through those things because a lot of people don't see the horrific aspects that we see and therefore they can't it's hard for them to understand why we lack emotion sometimes right um but uh, to your point with the medicine aspect the plant-based but you know all those things uh going into psychedelics and things like that have been really helpful for a lot of uh individuals who have ptsd because it unlocks certain parts of the brain that certain things didn't do before because it wasn't this prescribed way and now we're starting to see holy cow, there's really good benefits. I know there's a lot of guys way more well-versed and there's other uh, friends of mine and podcasts that go into like the different journeys those guys have been through and those girls have been through that have changed their lives dramatically because now they've tapped back into the emotions. Those things have helped with connections. Um, That's a whole, like we go a whole other podcast just on that. I'd be happy to talk about that because I'm super passionate about it and it, and it, it works and it saves marriages and it saves people's lives. So we're, we're helping first responders, cops, firefighters. It doesn't yep. matter. I personally think part of the the problem with policing today mm-hmm. is that there is not enough time for police to recover between 100%. calls and between their shifts. I, I could not agree more. Like a perfect example is in the special forces community, they deploy and they're in that theater for whatever how many months it is. When they come back, they automatically go through decompression. They see psychologists. They decompress. They're allowed to be with their family. They give, they're given like a month, two months off. Then after that recovery period, they go back into training mode. They go back to redoing skills, right. fixing some things that may have been affected from other deployments and so forth. They rebuild, and then they cycle back in. Law enforcement needs that. Law enforcement Absolutely. needs to... You, there needs to be a cycle where you're, 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 yes, you're on the road, you do X amount of weeks on the road, and then you get a week, two weeks off, and then you go back into a training cycle, and then you go back on the road. Right. That I understand, I completely get the manpower issue that has to come with that, because in order to have that many people off to re, you know to decompress, costs money and time and all this, we're spending that in a whole different direction because yep. we avoid doing it that way. Absolutely. We avoid giving them the time off. You need to heal mentally from, you need to disassociate from that side of your life too. So that way you can be a part of your family. You can have the time. You can re, because right now it's just a rat race. You're just yeah. constantly in the hamster wheel going, 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 and you get your two or three days off. But usually what happens on those two or three days off, you're called in for a court case right. Other, yeah, maybe mandatory training, you have a de- deposition, any different things that happen. So you're not off. Or even worse, you're a dog handler. So then you're on call. Right. So then you're you're constantly on this heightened state of awareness because at any moment you have to act. Yep. Versus going, no, you're off. We're not touching you. We're not yeah, calling you. Off, going, off. Yes. Yeah. There's so much healing to you mentally that you get from that. I mean, now it'd be you'd be hard pressed to put me back in a uniform because I've had so much time away from it now that I look back and go, man, you know, I feel for my brothers and sisters in that world now because yeah. they don't get that recovery time. So no, it, that's it's a huge point to you know, even though this, this podcast is about dog stuff, <laughs> but that is well, a huge thing 
that has an impact on and, so many other aspects. And what of that. you lose is empathy in that in that your empathy with interactions with public. So yep. cops look and like dogs. Dicks. They're only dogs. dogs. Yeah. Yeah. So cops look like a dick. Yep. But it's not because they're a dick. Yep. It's because that it's them coping right now. Yep. Correct. It's and, so uh, so true. And yeah. And and if you ever do plant medicine, yep. there are great downloads you'll get about dogs. Yeah. Like yeah. I. Me and Michael have joked, like, I have dogs I want to resurrect and apologize to. That's right. And you get to sort of reconnect that, like, now I start every dog. Like, I have a little moment of, like, is it okay if I train you? Yeah. And I I will tell you right now I'm sorry because I'm not as good as I will be in the future. And I get you now, so you're going to get a rougher ride than I wish. So I love one of the things that he brought into my vocabulary now, him and Forrest, which was that I want the dog to give me permission. Right. And I move when the dog gives there's, me permission. There's consent, yes. Yes, because when you don't have that, it's a much harder road to go to train the dog when you're moving at the pace you want, right. not the pace the dog is ready for. And that there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, too. I wanted to hit one more thing before we wrap this up, which was uh, you mentioned, which is a very common thing, dogs dual trained, lie, find, and cadaver. And there's you've listed many situations where both things are happening. Pros and cons to this. What you know, I have my own thoughts on that. But what are you from that world see as the pros and cons to these dual disciplined dogs? I understand the methodology behind it for certain groups. It's like, well, I want them to do a lie find first to get become a good handler. Then we'll throw them into cadaver right. later on. But that has its own set of problems. But I'm just curious from your point of view, what do you see from that? So the 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 big reason why we do it on the USAR side is. The dogs are leading the charge for search generally. And if we have a cross-trained dog and that dog barks on human remains and we don't know if it's human remains or live because the dog is cross-trained, we're just committing that 80-person 80, 80 team to dig out a dead person. And mm-hmm. that is a terrible use of resources mm-hmm. when you see survivability rates drop off after like day three yep. during USAR events. So we want separate dogs so that the live find dogs, they lead out. Yep. They make their finds. They get work for the the rescue guys to go do, and then they're on to the next one. Um, wilderness is different, right? Because mm-hmm. the nature of wilderness searches is it's a mystery. Of is this person still alive or is this person dead? So if I have a cross-trained dog, then I only have to search it with one dog. I don't have to have more resources to go back and search it again. If like, okay, our live find dog says nobody's here now, we need to send an HRD mm-hmm. dog. So it's mm-hmm. a it's an asset mm-hmm. management thing. I see the point for wilderness. To me, single-purpose dogs excel. I was just going to say those words, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um, my first dog was cross-trained because he had to be. It was a requirement. Yeah. It's still a requirement mm-hmm. uh, in California for the wilderness dogs. I I have very strong feelings about single-purpose dogs. I have very strong feelings about active alerts, or alerts at the source rather than doing this find refine behavior. Mm-hmm. I think that degrades performance. Could not agree more. And um, generally, please don't get mad, no hate mail. <laughs> the dogs that go out and do the wilderness stuff tend to be softer than some of the dogs that need to be able to work on rubble and be cool in the environmentals. Yeah. You tend to get a little softer dog. Mm-hmm. They're great dogs, mm-hmm. they're perfect for the job. But I think adding that find refine to a softer dog further. I've seen what you're talking about because when I'm working with some teams, when they're, they, they'll ask a question like, how do I work on this? And then I realize, oh, it's a fine refined issue. 
a lot of it is because the confusion of where we reinforcements at, right, uh, and, and the conflict that comes into the dog. And though there's teams that figure it out a little bit better, but significant number of issues I've helped teams with directly comes from. So you can do a fine refine, but the current ways of training it skew the ability to really get it understood. Um, where just simply introdu- introducing multiple locations of reward or reinforcement can be at might help that, especially in certain sequences. But it's not necessarily used that way. Right now, it's I would say still matches a traditional way that's been passed down for yep. lots of years. Um, it's a great thing. And this kind of morphs us into the specialized human remains categories now that's starting to become more of a reality versus my dog's cadaver trained, therefore I can go right. do all, which way it used to be. Talk a little bit about what we're seeing in that specialized human remains detection and how it's starting to be kind of subdivided. So so we have the sort of standard response dogs, and those are those would be kind of on the FEMA side, our dogs are going to go find people who are killed in yep. collapse structures. Okay, so as we look at how these disasters unfold, okay, now we need to start training on those cremated human remains. Okay. But then it goes even further. So there's great organizations out there. Um, one of my one of my teammates, Lynn Engelbert, is part of it, and um, Adela Morris, and they do the Institute for Canine Forensics. Mm-hmm. So they will. There is historical and prehistorical searching. So yeah, they like archaeological. Do, yeah, they go yeah. do archaeological stuff. They will find Native American burial grounds, and they do fantastic work. But there's also her group does. When the fire passes through, we have the people who died, and FEMA will go recover mm-hmm. them. But if you have your grandma's ashes in your back closet that you never spread them, mm. what happens to grandma who's now part of the ashes of this big fire? Like Those ashes are important and should be recovered as well, even if you kept her in the closet for the last 25 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. You don't want her scraped with the rest of your lot and brought to the yeah. landfill. So there are dogs that will go find that grandma's ashes amongst the ashes. So they can differentiate between the ashes of your house and the ashes of grandma. And they're able to verify that they're right because they find the little coin that comes with Mm. with, uh, Mm -hmm. the cremations. Mm -hmm. So the specialization sort of continues. Now, are they going to give us the tools to be good at specialization? Sure, yeah. Like if they want us to go on these missions, and like we talked about before, I think that we need to have the tools to be successful. Yeah. Um, and all those other groups, they're volunteers. Mm-hmm. They may have a business around it, but um, it's super specialized. Like yeah. I couldn't do that because they'll search 15 square feet for three and a half hours, and I'd lose my freaking mind sure, doing that. that sure. is, I need to move a little bit more than that. But the dogs are amazing. It's, yeah. They can do it. And then there's the crime scene type of sure. There's remains. the crime scene type. Like we of talked dogs. about the blood detection earlier or the other day in our class. Um, the pros and cons of blood. Well, in crime scene, blood would be important. Blood is a no. big, big thing to find, right? That is evidence. And yeah. you know, one of the other things you find at crime scenes is hair. Hair is one of the other big. But do I want to go train on that as a mm-hmm. FEMA person? Heck no. Nope. No. That causes too many other problems down the road, mm-hmm. and uh, it becomes a threshold issue yeah. as well. Yeah. But the crime scene dogs are fantastic. Should the crime scene dogs also be doing disaster stuff? Mm. Well, I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. That's sort of like they're getting out of their specialization yeah. to work in a different environment. Um, I think that there should be pretty clear separation on fire scenes that that belongs to fire dogs who have the training to work there safely and the proper equipment and um, the rest of the wilderness stuff mm-hmm. or even the crime scene stuff. Mm-hmm. That should be law enforcement dogs. Yeah. Our weaknesses is our record keeping. You don't want me on the stand trying to defend my dog who just found the murder weapon. You want a law enforcement dog doing that. Likewise, you may not want a volunteer breathing all that nasty fire stuff when mm-hmm. we could do it and we've trained in it and we know how to do it safely. Yeah. it's I, I couldn't agree more in the sense that we got to devote to education and then standards, which then helps the classifications for teams. Um, and then control a little bit of the excitement of the human side of going – well, I got my crime scene cadaver certification. Now I want to get my water cadaver certification. Now I want to go get my wilderness cadaver sure. cert and, and realize that because I, I get the mentality of, well, I want to deploy on anything, but that generalist mentality inhibits what we really need. We want to, This is why we have a heart surgeon. This is why we have exactly. the brain, the, you know, yeah. the ones that work on the brain. We got the ones that are oncologists. You don't. Your general doctor doesn't treat everything, and I think if we take a more uh, a similar approach to a lot of the dog things, like a lot of our European counterparts do, and start to say, "Hey, in this category, we need some subcategories that we can specialize in and be really good at," and these teams, and they all work together. You know, it's all part of a team. It's like anything other sport. Right. We have positions and. Yes, there's going to be certain categories that may get called a lot more than the other ones. Um, they're all equally important because that one time when you need that one that one specialist, yep. uh, a specialist that does this, we need them. Yep. You know, they may not get called as often, but we need them, and we need to be good at what they do. Right. The one who may get called a lot more, yeah, they, it's like the quarterback. They get the glory because they're used a lot. You know, they made the right play, so everybody wants to be the quarterback, but that. You know, defensive tackle is really important too. It can make some important plays. You just don't hear them very often. Right. Um, so I hope that you know, as this evolves and our search and rescue community keeps doing what it's doing by growing and evolving and adapting, that we can start going into those subcategories. But also, more importantly, create a educational system that's really helpful for the handlers. So they can get properly supported and educated to go do whatever it is they want to go do. And there's a place to go do it. There's a place to accountability system that says, yes, you've been educated and trained. You've met some benchmarks. You're fit for duty. You can do these kind of things no matter which category you want versus trying to throw all the eggs into the basket and just hope I get called. Because like you said, the internal motivators of wanting to give back or to help the community, I'm retired now, or I, I, I've i been successful in this career field, I want to switch to this one. We give them what they need to be successful. Right now, the tools are all over the place. Some get them, some don't. Yeah. So if we can get better about centralizing, creating standards, even people don't like to hear that sometimes, but it's important that we do have these standards because that unifies Yep. It's able to say, if I send a team to Minnesota, they're going to operate this way. Yep. If I send a team to Hawaii, they're going to operate this way. And no matter what, it yep. works. And that's important. It's tough in the dog world because the old saying, the only two things, the only thing that two trainers agree upon is what the third one's screwing up right. on. Um, so 
we just we do need to kind of become more unified in these positions and understand and celebrate some of the differences that exist. And there's there's two parts to it. I think that there there's the unification part that you just mentioned. That means we need to look at the wilderness handlers and say they're actually pretty good. Yeah. And not only are they good, but they are probably more dedicated to the dog training part than some of the USAR people sure, who just sure. give a dog that's fully trained, hand it to them. Those people are trying to figure this out and how to make their dog work. Um, but we also need to get out of search and rescue. So leaving the search and rescue training and seeing what the dog sport mm-hmm. people are doing mm-hmm. is so huge. We we miss out on the advancements in dog training when we stay in our silo. Yeah. So how do, going to talk to the military guys, seeing what they're doing, learning from them. We don't do enough of that. Yeah. You, you know your search and rescue little training group and you stay within your training group and nothing really changes. Yeah. And that's not the right thing to do for the dog Mm-mm. at the end of the day. If we can get the dogs to perform better with the least amount of stress that we put on them, that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, we just need some help doing it, yeah. really. We need places to send people. We need the Cameron Ford School. We need Michael mm-hmm. Ellis. We need all those things because people want to do it. There are people who want to go out and learn and improve themselves and understand the why and see how the sausage is made. Um, but they need the opportunities to do so. And they don't know where to start. No. And, and which brings me to the last question. You know, the reason why you're here is you're going through a training class with me and Michael You've done a lot of stuff. Why? What made you come to this? What? Why did you want to do this? This is how you know burnout's a real thing for dog handlers, and this is how I fight my burnout. Is I come to talk to people who are just as excited as me to talk about dog stuff and can ask the questions like, "How do I get my dog addicted to scent so mm-hmm. he acts like an addict?" Like mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk to me about that back home like <laughs> it makes me weird but i'm sitting there in bed that's just that's the stuff i think about at night and coming here helps me become better and that in turn help, helps me help my team mm-hmm. so that if somebody's struggling with i can't i can't do an emergency down what is happening and we can break it down and see well you've stopped giving good corrections to your dog Mm -hmm. you have some conflict in your relationship Mm -hmm. and that's where the heart of this problem is i don't learn that by hanging out with search rescue people i i learned that by hanging out with michael and watching how he works his dogs yeah so the way the way i became a good medic is i watched really good medics work and i stole all their stuff sure and so i'm here to kind of get all that and i'm here to challenge you guys on stuff like I think this, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. Tell me what I'm missing. Sure. Like, I need people to be able to bounce that off of. And sometimes if you stay insular in your groups, you just think you're right. Yeah. And so we all need to drop a little bit of ego, which canine handlers have. It's hard sometimes. Have some ego yeah. and realize there's there's some things we need to learn. Because one thing I'm sure of is, Five years into being a dog handler, I really knew it all. Like, I knew everything. And the longer I do this, it's like the less I know or the less I'm sure of. Yeah. So now most of my answers start with, well, it depends. Uh So um, coming here is an opportunity for me to sort of like reinvigorate myself and learn a few things. And and I want to encourage other people to do that too. Cross-pollination is such a good thing. Yeah. Um, Like I said, for for. I'll give an example for me when I went and helped uh, an urban search rescue group. At first, I was kind of, I was like, man, what can I, 
really offer them because I didn't come from that world. What I quickly realized was my operational experience, the experience I had for the military side of things and law enforcement were skills that they hadn't thought of in a certain way or they didn't see it from my perspective. So just setting up training problems from my perspective, from lessons I've learned from those worlds, but applying it to what they do surprised me how well it they liked it because I wasn't sure. I, I'm not used to that group. You know, the cop world in the military world, I know I can create crazy stuff and right. they'll they'll embrace it. Um, or they're more used to it, I should say. In this case, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. They either you're going to hate me right. or you know, whatever it was. Um, so it's great to see that that was just an internal association for me to express to others cross-pollination is good because just like you said – I would if I was a search and rescue person. Like, what would Cameron Ford bring to me? He's a military cop guy. Why would what would that do? I felt the same way. I didn't know what I would give to you guys. And what I had learned was, oh, you value my perspective on operational readiness, and I'm thinking of things that aren't from your world, but then turn out applying to your situational awareness. The things that we brought up earlier were things that were like, oh, okay, that would be. So it took me out because I was looking at it from a dog trainer's point of view. Right. When I first went into it. I was like, oh, I, well, what can I do dog training wise or human training towards dog? And I was like, no, this world for me learned a lot more from my experiences, operational failures and successes and um, sharing that with them and sharing the way we set up training exercises to mimic our real world conditions was something that was useful that I wouldn't have thought of at first as looking at it from the dog trainer's perspective. Right. So, you know, we, and we talked earlier, um, Evan Nolte. Yeah. Den mother canine. Yep. Big shout out to him. Yep. He's doing great things, bringing his real world experience of out of hospital care for canines to people who may be in that position. So, mm-hmm. You know, as a handler, I'd taken a canine medical class, and I sat mm-hmm. in a classroom, and I bandaged a dog's paw. Yeah. But you go to Evan's class, and it's a whole nother level uh-huh. of stress yes. and performance, and you're going to leave there, and Pressure. you're going to remember yep. what you what you learned. And that only happens through cross-pollination. Like, I never would have sure run does. into Evan unless I had been screwing around out here with people <laughs> who are not in my little search and rescue yep. world. So. Definitely wow. everybody get out, go do other places. It's really important that you do that. Yeah. So thank you again for coming to this podcast. Yeah. How thank do people you. find you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, so there's a couple ways. I'm on all the socials. Tim Howling, H-O-U-W-E-L-I-N-G. Sounds like a dog, but it's spelled really <laughs> weird. Too many vowels. It's Dutch. Um, uh, uh, HD Search Dog Fund is the nonprofit. Um, that helps provide equipment and training for dogs. The Siren Project is the PTSD nonprofit that we run. Um, and then my personal training business is Howling Dogs, and that's family dog stuff to sort of fully train search and rescue dogs. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much again for coming on Yeah, here. thanks for having me. All right. Yeah, talk to you soon. Hangout. Everybody, thank you for tuning in to Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy.